If you can, please turn as we continue in the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 19. I'll be preaching about the whole of the, uh, the text, but the whole chapter. But in order to uh, keep it PG for our little ears that listen to God's word today, I am only going to be reading verses 15 through 29. We continue as we hear that, that God... He is going to visit the injustice, the violence, the things that are happening in a city called Sodom. He tells Abraham, Abraham calls out for these people. He intercedes for these people. He asks for mercy. When God said he will investigate and see if what he knows is true to be true. And so he will investigate by sending two messengers, two angels of the Lord, to listen and see what happens. And now we have a, uh, a good view into what this episode looks like and how dark and how sad and how terrible uh, these people have gotten to the point of misusing people who are made in God's image to uh, taking advantage of the vulnerable. So we pick it up in verse 15 of chapter 19. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. He tarried. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, uh, uh, behold, your, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, uh, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zaor, which means little. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word. May the meditation of my heart and the words of my lips be pleasing to you. Amen. Uh, a couple nights ago, one of my children came up to me, bouncing and really eager to ask this question that she'd been thinking about because we'd been watching some war movies, including the great movies of Star Wars. Uh, we are big fans, and if anyone says anything otherwise, especially about The Empire Strikes Back being the best film of the entire series, I will strike back. So... My child comes up to me and asks a very pertinent question. She said, Daddy, in things like war, do the bad guys think they are the good guys? 
You see, and I had to come down and answer her truthfully because I thought about this as a child too before I even knew anything about Christianity. And I had to say, you know something, honey? None of us are far beyond sin. And so much so that sin can blind us and mess us up. So much so it makes bad guys think they're good guys. And in doing so, we are kind of led into this story of how bad did it get in Sodom so much that they thought the, they were the good guys. What they were doing was the right thing. And so, let's remember now there's a 30 for 30 series coming out right now about Lance Armstrong, one of the chief villains of our culture and society who duped everybody by doping. Lance Armstrong is a chief uh, example of someone who justifies their sin. He justifies the, his doping and his cheating by telling other people, like, oh, well, you know, I was abused. Uh, everybody else was doping. And so, therefore, he wants to downplay his sin in the way he duped other people. He was acting out of a corrupt nature. How that corrupt nature really started whenever he was little and had always been there, but the corrupt nature for him was the trauma of being not accepted by his stepfather, pushed to the brink of where he only found acceptance and love in winning. So he became addicted to winning. He became addicted to sin. He became addicted to those things. You see, in this episode, we see the demonstration of the horrors of being addicted to sin. The entire episode is told for those of us, for us who are reading, and the entire episode is telling us to repent, turn around, don't turn back. Turn to Jesus and don't look back. The visitation of God and these messengers should have woken the people up. But no. They were blind to their sin. They, want, they did what they wanted to do. They were addicted to their sin. And instead of being woken up, the people are incited to more violence. Lot is rescued only by mere mercy, but we see what happens when the addiction to sin is rooted deeply in his heart. The audience which would be listening to this probably would have been the Exodus audience that was taken out of slavery in Egypt, out of the place of sin, out of the place of despair, and they are encouraged to not turn around. The entire episode tells us this one thing, turn your back to your enslaving sins. Do not go back there. Do not go back to slavery. Breathe the fresh air of freedom in Jesus Christ. Go there. That is where you will find love. That is where you will, your soul will rejoice. It is not by dabbling in dealing with your sin again. And we see the horrors of it in the life of Lot. And it does this, the episode does this by getting us to answer three questions. How does sin enslave us? How does mercy save us? And how do we live after? 
How does sin enslave us? How does mercy save us? And how do we live after? First, how does sin enslave us? One, sin enslaves us by making us think that we are uh, that that there is a not a better way. That sin through this way is the only way I can find happiness, freedom, the things that my heart most want wants. And so, sin traps us into thinking that we're doomed to save ourselves. That we have to prove ourselves. And that salvation is only through feeding our appetites. Sin as a power attacks our hearts. It messes with what we love. And so that we, the chief thing that we love becomes an idol and we serve that. And when we don't ultimately love God, then all of our actions, affections, appetites become pointed and directed into a place they were never intended to go by our Creator who is God. Only people like you and I with a broken heart sin. Every person was born with a broken heart. It's what theologians have called original sin. We are all a tangle of disordered love stemming from this broken heart. Sin makes us addicts for more sin. So, up becomes down, down becomes up. Therefore, God's right side up world will look upside down to most of us who are troubled with sin. The sexual ethics of the Bible will look bigoted or archaic to most of us who are troubled with sin. The Bible's views on wealth will look too progressive like social welfare systems. Its views on race relations, protests, and ethnic, ethnic divisions will look radical in one book and then passive on the next page. Why? Because all of our thinking and, feelings, and feeling faculties have been corrupted by sin. Every crooked ruler will always draw crooked lines. Our nature, our very being, needs to be rescued and renewed in order that it may do otherwise than sin. The human heart has been poisoned by the lie in the garden, the lie saying that you can be good without God. But Jesus is the antidote to that poison. The effect of that poison, though, is the self-determinism, that I'm a self-made person. I am the master of my own fate. I can make myself good again without God. You see, broken, corrupted hearts sin. This episode demonstrates the outworking of a sinful disposition towards its ultimate end. Where does it go? It ends in a downward spiral of blackness, darkness, and sin. How bad does this poison get? Notice that there's a literary clues that tell us that we're entering into a dark episode. First, the angels show up at the gate of the city when it was evening, it says. The text in the Hebrew says it was dark. That's it. They show up. It was dark. Why? Because it is to demonstrate for us that this is a dark episode. That darkness in the ancient Near East was a literary device in a time in which we were to know that this is wickedness. This is not good. If you remember also that the angels look down in chapter 18 and they go down into the plain. If you remember the places of the plain way back in chapter 11 is where the, the city of Babel was built. It is the city of worldliness, a city that is opposed to God. 
That is this kind of city. They are the anti-God people. Next it says that um, uh, it, it'll tell us that, the, it, that this is just kind of beyond uh, the, the mere actions of any just mere men that these people have devolved into some sort of awful spiral through their sin. Uh, any ancient Near Eastern cities, about a hundred or so people. And so when it says that all the men, young to old, every man came and that they wanted to have uh, sexual relations with these two messengers, it's demonstrating that they are so selfish that they would consume the life of another to satisfy their appetites. They no longer look at people as people made in the image of God, but as instruments to be used. This is to demonstrate how terrible sin had twisted the culture of the city, including the one who will be saved, Lot. And so how bad was it in Sodom? I need to take an apologetic station break here because uh, in recent literature, there is a man by the name of Matthew Vines who is an uh, advocate for LGBTQ uh, issues. And he's written about this episode and he argues that the traditional interpretations of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah has resulted in something he would say is bad fruit. Uh, particularly the mistreatment of the LGBTQ community. Therefore, because, he argues, the interpretation has caused harm, we ought to reinterpret the episode. So in conclusion, Vines goes on to advocate that the sin of Sodom was being inhospitable. He quotes Ezekiel 16.49, which says, This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. He usually stops his quote there. And it says this, They were haughty and did, not, did an abomination before me. So Vines concludes, it is not homosexuality, but inhospitality that causes this judgment. But in the episode, we are told that their inhospitality is demonstrated in what they desired to do to God's messengers. It is to demonstrate that sin had so twisted them that they have traded the natural for the unnatural, according to Romans 1. Now, there is a part where I do agree with Matthew Vines. I agree that verses like this have been used to unnecessarily shame, hurt, and justify the bullying of LGBTQ friends and neighbors and family members. But we do not need to change the interpretation of these verses to say that those who are hurting and harming, that, that, that those, are, those are not things that we are to be, do, to be doing. Uh, you know, we don't need that in order to say same-sex attraction is wrong. It is not the way God designed it or desires it. But the Bible over and over says that God loves sinners as well, like you and me. We know also that these are people, our neighbors, who are created in the image of God. And they are due dignity and respect, our kindness and love, not our shame and bullying. 
to the same-sex attracted Christian, they, who, they readily know that their desires have been damaged by the fall and sin. And at the same time, they can still, by God's grace, honor him with their sexuality by following his design for sex. In the same way, heterosexual persons, Christians, whose sexual desire is also corrupted, like my sexual desire, by sin, we need to trust in God's goodness and God's way. And knowing that sex is best expressed and meant to be expressed between one man and one woman as an expression of self-giving love within the context of marriage. And by God's grace, we can follow that. And so that's where we're to go. And so this episode demonstrates how bad these worldly sins and the, it have gotten and gotten become anti-God and how it has been twisted. Notice that it is Lot who meets the messengers at the city gate, meaning Lot himself became an elder and a representative for this city. That is where elders hung out and he meets him at the gates. Now we also see how Lot tries to keep the sins of the city hidden. Notice how hastily he makes this feast. He hurries them on. He's like, all right, now y'all need to get gone before morning comes, before they come over here and see that you're with me. You need to get gone. He's trying to hide the shameful parts and the scary parts. We all try to hide the shameful and scary parts of our lives. And so we hastily go to church and we hastily get out. We hastily work with our friends and talk to them and we give them a little bit of how bad it is in our city and how bad our sins are. And then we hastily get out. Lot then, as whenever he's caught and his sin start, comes knocking at the door, Lot gets out there and stands in between the messengers and these people who are trying to have relations with the two messengers. And what does he say? He says, uh, I will make it better. Why don't you, uh, how about, I've got two daughters. What in the world are you thinking, Lot? That is how messed up. He's trying to do something virtuous, but even his virtue is twisted and messed up. Who in the world would do that? And the author is trying to say, this is how messed up this entire episode is. It's supposed to be dark, bleak, black. It is terrible. It is not good in this time. Even after being blinded, so the messengers grab Lot, rescue him, bring him in. Then they go and uh, blind the people. What do the people do? They are so, so into their sin, even blinded, they do not repent. What do they do? They start groping for the door, trying to find a way in. They want to sin so bad. It is like an addict who needs a hit. It is bad. That is how bad it had gotten. Lot is then told to get out, take his son-in-laws, and his son-in-laws don't believe him. Don't believe him. And then it says that he tarries. He lingered. He waited. He dabbled. He's like, I'm okay here in this awful sinful place. And God and through the author is trying to say, get out. This is awful. 
You see, our sins will shape our unspoken and precognitive actions. All of Lot's actions have been twisted by his sin. All of the people's actions have been twisted by their sin. All of our prejudices and biases are formed by our corruption and by sin. A poisoned heart will not work properly, meaning it doesn't love the things God loves. Think about consumerism. Consumerism will get us to treat people as objects, seeing them as nothing more than something to consume, like a box of cereal or something. And we look at them, we can oogle at it on our computer screens, and we use people up that way. Another way to think about it is the way we consume church. We like to go church shopping. We try to find the best fit for me that will satisfy my needs. Think about, uh, I made up this word, entertainmentism. I, you know, I go to the places that make me feel deeply. It can move me. And we apply that to church. And you feel that you need to be constantly looking for the best show. We're addicted to being titillated. If consumerism is being addicted to buying, then entertainmentism is being addicted to being entertained. Individualism. Expressed really well by Glennon Doyle whenever she says uh, her parenting advice is to surround yourself like an island with only your people. It's like having a bunch of yes men. It's being addicted to self-affirmation. That's individualism. What about racism? All the prejudice and prejudgment that we have in our heart against a group of people who are different of, of a different ethnic origin. That, that what it does is it starts deep in our heart. It starts with us thinking that we're superior to other people. I would never do that. That group of people over there. We separate ourselves and we think that we're superior. You know, if our first reaction to things like the murder of George Floyd, who was an image bearer of God, he was someone's son. He's someone's friend. If this isn't the smelling salts that we need to wake us up and wake up our countries and our hearts, I don't know what will. If our first reaction is, well, we need to find out what kind of character he actually had. I think he was committing a crime. Hey, what crime? What crime demands uh, the... Uh, Someone killing another person made in the image of God. Okay? You know, if that's our first reaction before we lament the egregious treatment of ethnic minorities in our country and the miscarriage of justice by those called to serve and protect, then maybe I, you know, I need to check my heart. If you're tired and weary, if you say, I'm tired and weary about the questions and the discussion of race relations, justice, and equity, imagine how those who are, in, who are survivors in the black community feel whenever they cry, how long, oh Lord, how long, how do they feel? We should join them until Christ returns. You see, calling for peace without calling for justice is promoting indifference. You see, what you want is the status quo. You don't want love. And that's not love. As Martin Luther King Jr. says, right is the language of the unheard. Don't hear what he's not saying. 
In the same speech, King would also say that riots and looting are self-destructive and self-defeating. But it brings to light as a wake-up call for our nations that we have prejudices in all of our hearts. And it needs to be called out. A group of people who are so upset at years of inequality cry out. And it boils over. Justice needs to be had. Justice needs to happen in order that we may have true peace. You see, what we need to do is identify our enslaving sins and we need to confront them. And I mean this individually and corporately. So ask yourself this. What do I always justify? When I'm confronted, what do I justify? What do I justify in myself? Whenever I'm confronted, what am I quick to downplay? What sin is that? You know, where am I always searching for reasons for what I did? Where do you deflect? Where do you blame shift? You see, God shows us how every ism is just slavery. God comes to save us. By calling out consumerism, by calling out individualism, by calling out nationalism, by calling out racism, by calling out workism, by calling out sexism, Jesus died to our, for our addiction to isms. And we need to call it what it is, and it is sin. To which there is a redeemer, a savior. So how does God's mercy save us? How does mercy save us? We can easily think that God's mercy on us is uh, just general lacking in severity. You know, it is just God's kindness to us. But there is no lacking in severity. We understand God's mercy is his relenting from giving us our just deserts by our sin. But in order to save Lot, Lot had to be taken out, rescued by pulling him back inside the door away from the, the sin of the people. And then Lot also had to be taken out by the hand like he was a child to stop playing with his sin. You see, mercy sometimes is severe. Mercy sometimes needs to grab you by the hand and by the scruff of the neck. And if you want to know about mercy, and you want to know how destructive sin is, look at the cross. Lot is told to get out. His son-in-laws don't believe him. Let me put it this way. The other day, the other day I'm riding my bike. I love to teach my kids how to ride bikes. Um, my little girl is riding behind me. I say, hey, we need to go from a driveway into the street. There is a bike lane. I want you to turn into the bike lane. Um, and it was an action that I needed to take. And so we came around. I went ahead of her. And then I looked and I see my daughter careening at me at full speed. She's about to go around me and into the lane of traffic, missing the bike lane entirely. And there is a car coming at full speed. My daughter is about to run into a car. Now, 
I could easily say, well, you know, the course of her action will take her into a car and, you know, we'll just leave her at that, you know? In a lot of ways, we in our sin are careening toward the edge of a cliff and we need to be stopped. And so what do I do? I don't let her get hit by the car. I back up my bike just a little bit so she runs full speed into me and bumps her face, nearly breaking her nose and she has this little black mark on her nose. Why do I have mercy on her? Because I love her. And at the cross, we see the severity of mercy. We see what our sins were taking us to in the torn apart body and the destruction of Jesus Christ. Your sin, my sin, is destructive. The sin of our nation is destructive. The sin of these people is destructive. And Jesus was destroyed for us so that we can have mercy. And if the cross doesn't grab you by the scruff of the neck or hurt you in the hand by pulling you out, we got to be weary. Look at the mercy of God to take him out. Take him out of that culture. You see, at times we will need our friends to tell us we are headed to the edge of the cliff and our sins are messing us up. We need to be told that we're on the path of destruction. Sometimes we have to be drastic to spare our friends. We have to plead and implore them. We have to pull them out. We also have to be severe with our sin. We have to be killing every crooked way in ourselves and in our culture. We need to do that. That's mercy. And this episode then begins to end on telling us how we are to live after we are saved. And the number one thing about this is whenever she, Lot's wife turns around and she is turned into salt. The number one thing that is communicated is this. Don't turn around. Yes, I know it is a quote literally from the 90s Ace of Base song, Don't Turn Around Just to See My Heart Breaking. You know, Just Walk Away. I, I, it played every once in a while on 94 Key at my home radio station in a little town of Alamogordo. But I remember that, and this is important. Don't turn around. If you have experienced God's mercy and grace, if he has saved you from destruction... At the cross of Jesus Christ, don't turn around looking back longingly, lovingly with your sin. Don't be like Meg Ryan and you've got mail, who when Tom Hanks walks away near the end and she sees him and she touches her face and she's like, oh my gosh. That she waits at the garden and sees Tom Hanks coming over with Brinkley and she says longingly to him, I hoped it was you. Don't do that. Nor should you be like Julia Roberts in Notting Hill when Hugh Grant bursts in the door and he says, I'm just a boy trying to love a girl. And, you know, and Julia Roberts gets all misty-eyed and looks at him. 
and it's love and all the cameras spark and nodding. You know, don't do that. Don't do that with your sin. Don't be like Princess Leia as, as Han Solo is about to be frozen in carbonite and looks at him and she says, I love you and Han Solo, of course, with the greatest line, I know. Oh my gosh. Don't do that. Don't be Renee Zellweger and Jerry Maguire who said, you have me at hello. You had me at hello. Don't do that with your sin. Why? Because the true lover is not your sin. The true love and the true life that you need is not found in the plains and the worldliness of the plains where, which, which Lot was so enamored by because in Genesis 13 he wanted to go down there. It was worldly. It was against God. Don't do that. That isn't the life you were meant for. Nor... Nor should you look back like Lot's wife longing to look back. Nor should you be like Lot who continued after he was saved saying, Oh, relent on me in order that I may go to this little city. Just a little city in the plain. Just a little bit. It was like he was saying, Oh, please don't take it all away from me. I just need a little bit. I just need a little bit. And we are tempted every day to dabble and dally with our sin. It's just a little bit of porn. It's just a little bit of shopping. It's just a little bit of anger. It's a little bit of self-righteousness. It's just a little bit more weed. It's just a little bit more alcohol. It's just a little more. You see, a little bit of heroin can kill you. It will mean your destruction. Just a little tolerance of sin in your life can be the undoing of it. It doesn't mean that you're going to be unsaved. Lot was saved. But Lot was also destroyed in the long run. The epilogue to this in the rest of chapter 19 tells how he became the father of the Ammonites, the great enemies of Israel. It was darkness just because he wanted a little bit. Just a little bit of our sins. Toying with a little bit of your sins will destroy you. So here's the appeal to God's people from this text. Don't look back. There's nothing for you there in that life. There's nothing for you. Look upon your Savior. Turn and see the beauty and goodness of God's love in the person of Jesus Christ. For every look at your sin, take ten looks to Christ. Look at Christ who loves you so much that he takes the severity of mercy, the severity of justice that you deserve on the cross. Look at how beautiful and strong his love is that creates a new creation in you. Remember his love and his goodness in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you see God's love in the broken body of Christ for you? This text implores us, turn your back to those inferior sinful loves. 
for the true love and the true life that is in Christ. He loves you. He rescued you by paying your penalty on the cross. Turn to him and don't ever turn around. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, we need your spirit to empower us to turn away from sin, to turn to you, to see you, to love you. Lord, give us strength every day to love you more, to become more like you. Help us to be people who call out sin and injustice in this world and call out the sin and injustice in our heart that it may be confronted and it may be turned away from. Lord, if there is any waywardness in our hearts, reveal it to us. Any opposition to you, show it to us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.